0: amen. I'm Pastor Jeff, one of the pastors here at FBC, and I want to welcome you this morning as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I come to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for your goodness and your grace upon us. May you move through our hearts this morning, that your wisdom would be greater than anything, any perspective we have on our own that you would speak to us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thanks, Jeff. First Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Jeff read it for us. We want to talk a little bit about trust. The title of the message today is Well-Placed Trust. Well-Placed Trust. That's on the sermon note sheet that's in your worship folder so that's not new information if you've already looked at it. Well-placed trust. But I wanted to mention just briefly if you don't mind um, something a little bit about trust because when you think about trust um, I mean it's not a complicated term. Trust is when you, you rely on something to do something. Uh, it, you, it's not complicated but the, the challenge we have is I think it's just my opinion is we think about trust in two different spheres. We think about trust in real life, if I can say it that way. You can trust people, you can trust your car, you can trust your roof won't leak, you can trust the chair won't break when you sit on it. There's lots of things you can trust. But then when we move into the realm of thinking about God, the things of God in our spiritual life, we think about trust differently and we may not even realize it. We think of trust instead of relying, we think of it as wishing. And, and we, we tend to shift in our thinking about trust when it comes to the things of God, and we, we're no longer trusting, we're wishing. And, and the reason this is the case is because where most of us growing up got our sense of the immaterial is from Walt Disney cartoons. You know, this is, this is how we think things work, is you wish something hard enough Wish upon a star. You wish something hard enough, then, then what happens is reality conforms to your wish. Does that, does that make sense? Have you seen this in any uh, Disney film? Some of you have never seen a Disney film. Okay. But this is a very, very common theme. If you wish something hard enough, if you think about something hard enough, and actually, not just Disney any longer, this is a very common theme. A perspective on how the universe works. You hear people say, you know, I, I projected into the universe that it's going to manifest some sort of reality. I spoke a word of power. This is all is very Disney. Yeah, if I can wish something hard enough, then reality will conform to the way I, I want things to be. This is not what the Bible talks about when it talks about trust. The, the Bible does not talk about trust in terms of wishing something would happen. Trust is based on I'm relying on someone to do something. I'm counting on something, that somebody is trustworthy. That what that means is that trust is only useful to the degree it's placed on something that is trustworthy. You can trust something useless all day long but if it's not trustworthy, it will, it will fail you. So what use is there to trust something that's not trustworthy? There's no use. If you trust something that can't do the, the thing you want it to do, it's no use. If you get a drinking straw out and go out to mow your lawn with the drinking straw. I don't even know how you would do that. I don't even know what you would do. I... But that's not a trustworthy thing. But that's how we think about uh, things. If I, if I trust something, it will happen. What, what The way biblical faith works is the way faith works everywhere, which is this. Trust only matters if you're depending on something that is trustworthy, that is powerful, that can do the thing it's intended to do. And so what the Apostle Paul is going to do in this passage is show us how his faith is working In the Lord. And he's going to argue that his faith in the Lord is a well placed trust. So we're going to look at two sections of this verses one and two a well placed trust because God has a really good motive. And let me explain that in a minute. And also in the second part of this, he has well placed trust because God is powerful. So verses one and two well placed trust. And he's going to show us a little bit about God's motive. Let me read it again. Jeff read that great and wanted to just remind us. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, have you heard of a guy named Bernie Madoff? Anybody heard of this guy? So, he was a, a, a money manager, investment advisor, He had two elements of his business. He had a legitimate business, which actually turns out was extraordinarily profitable. He was one of the founders of the NASDAQ. This guy had a legit the legitimate side of his business would have made him wealthier than almost all of us. But he also had a side of his business that was illegitimate where he took uh, investment funds in and didn't actually invest them. And he created what's called a Ponzi scheme. At the time, when it fell apart, it was the single largest Ponzi scheme in the history of the United States losing investors billions of dollars. And the question is, why would anybody give Bernie Madoff money? And if you watch, there's some documentaries on him. It's fascinating. The people who invested with him said, what? why would I give Bernie Madoff money? It was Bernie. It was Bernie. I've known him for 40 years. That he founded the NASDAQ. This is a guy who knew how to take money and make a profit. And he was really, really good at it. In fact, he was really, really good at it. He was also a crook. And so the reason he was trusted is because they trusted him. He was good at what he was doing and they trusted his motives. We know what he's up to. He's not going to steal money. Why would Bernie Madoff need to steal money from me? He's a billionaire. Why would he need to steal money from me? So what happened is they th- people thought they could trust him because they knew what he was up to, knew what, his, what motivated him. We're still not totally sure what motivated him, but what happened was he was motivated for things that ended up creating a criminal enterprise. We can, we can trust lots of things for lots of reasons, but to trust Jesus as a, a credible, place to place our trust, to to assume that Jesus is trustworthy. One of the reasons is to understand his motive. What did he do for us? He died for us. So what does that tell you about his motive? What does that tell you about his motive? We can trust Jesus because he is someone who dies for us. That's what he says. Look at how Paul starts. When he came, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Again, if you want to read a little bit about what happened in Corinth when Paul visited them, you can go back and read Acts 18 at your leisure. He reminds us, though, that when he came to the city of Corinth, he came in a manner that they would not have expected. He reminds them that when he came, he didn't come proclaiming the testimony of God in lofty speech or wisdom. So it tells us two things. Number one, the content of his message to the people of Corinth was the testimony of God. He came to tell the people of Corinth what God was telling them. And what was God telling the people of Corinth? The same thing he's been telling people for all of time. Humans need life in God because we have sinned against him. And God has made the way for that relationship to be restored through forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. And so Paul comes to the Corinthian uh, people and he proclaims to them the testimony of God. Jesus came as a culmination of the people of Israel... Offered himself as a sacrifice voluntarily on the cross. He rose from the dead. We're going to get to that in 1 Corinthians 15. He rose from the dead. Now anyone who trusts him receives forgiveness of sin and eternal life. That's the testimony of God. Now secondly, that's the content of of what he had to say. The next thing that he emphasizes is the way in which he said it. He says, he didn't use lofty speech or wisdom. He didn't use the rhetorical and speech techniques of the intellectual philosophers of that time. Now we must understand, it doesn't mean he couldn't have, Paul's a smart guy. He knows how to uh, convince and how to persuade and he was very familiar with the poetry and literature of the time. If you read Acts 17 when he is uh, making testimony to the people in Athens. He doesn't quote from the Hebrew scripture. He quotes from secular prophets. And so this is a guy who is familiar with philosophy and literature and speech. He made a, on purpose, he went into Corinth and he didn't use all that intellectual smarty pants stuff. He just told them, here's what God wants to tell you. He simply shared the testimony of God with them. Why would he do that? because he trusts what God is up to. His decisions on how he behaved in the city of Corinth are a result of him understanding what the most effective way to reach lost people is, is not for, with his own technique, but rather with the message of God to the people. He depended on God to do the work. He didn't depend on himself to do the work. Let me show you a couple of places in your New Testament where this shows up. In Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 19, Jesus is talking with his disciples. He says this at the beginning, "When they deliver you over, if I were a disciple, I would have stopped. In, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> uh, is this an option? Does it, and, and maybe does this have to be an option? Maybe there doesn't need to be any delivering over. But that's not the way it's going to be. "When they deliver you over," he says to his disciples, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So Jesus is telling his disciples that at a certain point in the future, they will be delivered over to authorities, and they're going to have to give an answer for their testimony of Jesus. And Jesus says, don't worry about it in that moment. The Holy Spirit is going to give you the words that you need to speak. The Apostle Paul understands that this is a principle. That yes, there's nothing wrong with being knowledgeable. And there's, as the Bible tells us over in Peter, there's an appropriate time for us to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us. However, there is no reason for us to depend on our skill, our vocabulary, our technique. What Paul understands and what Jesus was communicating to his disciples, the effectiveness of the ministry of the gospel is the message of the gospel and the power of God. And that alone. And so with that in mind, Paul decided when he goes to Corinth, I'm just going to give him the, the message of the gospel. I'm going to depend on the, the power of God's spirit to use the plain spoken message of the gospel to have an effect in the life of the believers. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We'll start in verse 13, but let me set the stage. Peter had healed a guy who had was unable to walk. And he had the audacity to be dancing around, showing everybody he could walk. Then Peter then gave a sermon about Jesus being crucified by the authorities of Israel. And so the authorities did what you might expect them to do. They arrested them, brought them in. Answer for your words. Peter then declared to them the words, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, this is verse 10 of Acts 4, it is by his name that this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected. So he just told them them the truth. Listen to the observation of these religious scholars and leaders and authorities when they heard Peter destroy Proclaiming this very plain-spoken, straightforward gospel. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. That's very polite. These guys are too dumb to know how to talk this way. That's—I mean—that's what they're. These guys shouldn't know how to do this. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Do you see how the two things are working together? These guys are idiots. They were with Jesus. Jesus people are idiots. I don't know if that's the the math they were doing, but what they're what they're astonished with is not Peter and John. That's the critically important thing in this account. Are they impressed with Peter and John? No, in fact, they make note of the fact that they are unimpressed with Peter and John. They make note of that. In fact, they note because they are so unimpressed with Peter and John they, they suddenly remember he was with Jesus, and they sort of wonder if these two things are connected. Could these... I mean, look at these guys. Look at them. Look at them. Look at them. But, but they're talking in a way that doesn't match what they clearly are, and, so, and they were with Jesus. And I wonder if these things, two things are related. And, and that caused within them a, a bit of a conflict, like, well... There must be an explanation that makes rational sense. But then look at verse 14. But seeing the man healed standing beside them. Notice, not sitting. <laughs> standing beside them. Now they're really grappling with it. Okay, these guys are morons, but they're not talking like morons. Well, they were with Jesus. We're Pretty sure we killed that guy. But this guy is standing here. See how it's creating all this conflict? So who is awesome in this moment? Jesus, that's the whole point of the whole thing, is the, the religious leaders are impressed with, we thought we killed this guy, but a guy we thought we killed is now working while being absent through morons, I apologize, I'm just trying to make a point, while healing guys, and he's not even here anymore. They had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred. What should we do? It's a notable sign that they performed. Verse 17 But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let's warn them not to speak anyone any more in this name. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's funny. And Peter and John answered them Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Okay, something really, really important there. They're, they're trusting that what God is going to do is going to be done by God's power. And so as a result, they merely, their only job is to, to share their testimony. And it's real simple testimony for them. We hung out with Jesus. He said to forgive sins. We watched him die. And then he raised from the dead. We hung out with him for 40 days. And if you want... We can give you 250 names of other people who hung out with us. And that's our testimony. If you don't like it, what am I supposed to do about it? He forgave us when we trusted him. Is he trustworthy? Yes. Why? Because he died. He was willing to die for us. So one of the things that uh, we need to understand about the apostles, what do we know about the apostles before Jesus died? You know, they struggled a bit, like any of us would. You know, Peter didn't speak when he ought to, only spoke when he shouldn't have. (laughs) For someone who walked on water, he was a terrible swimmer. When it really came down to it, they all ran away. Uh, Peter at least took a swing with a sword, right? But for a swordsman, he's a really good fisherman. I mean, nobody comes home from battle. How'd battle go? I I cut a guy's ear off. I mean, nobody's getting a medal for lopping off ears. All right, these are not impressive guys. Jesus, while being beaten, has Peter downstairs denying him. After Jesus is raised from the dead, they have trouble believing Jesus is raised from the dead while he's sitting there eating lunch with them. So, so, what we have to understand is suddenly guys went from being extraordinarily cowardly, extraordinarily uh, self-serving, ex- looking for their own purposes. What, what, did, what did John and his brother ask? When you come into your kingdom, we want the two best seats. That, and then what changes after Jesus goes into heaven? They're all martyred. John really is the only one who he makes it into his 90s. All of the rest of them were, were perfectly happy to die for Jesus. Something changed. Something changed about these guys. Something suddenly went from this to this and what happened was Jesus happened. They didn't figure it out. They weren't smart enough, they weren't insightful enough, they weren't just really spiritually sensitive and seeking. The Holy Spirit, because of the testimony of God, changed them and the trajectory of their life was fundamentally changed. And so what they did is they just told, told people, I follow a guy who's trustworthy because he doesn't have an agenda other than to die for you. And that's his, his motive, is to give you forgiveness. Now let's look at verse two. 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says this, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This tells us something a little bit about how Paul was operating in the city of Corinth. He made a conscious decision. It wasn't as though he couldn't have used uh, Greek rhetoric. He chose not to because he determined that the power of God's gospel does not need his help. He determined that those who believe will believe in Jesus. And that's what they ought to believe in, is Jesus. They shouldn't believe in something else. And if they need something more than the gospel to believe, then they're not believing in the gospel. So he determined ahead of time, knowing the way the people of Corinth operate, that if he gives them something other than Jesus, they will be happy to believe. And so he decided, I'm just simply gonna give them Jesus. I'm gonna tell them here's what Jesus did. Why is this important? Because what can rhetoric do? What can good speaking do? What can intellect do? It can do all of the things that the people of Corinth wanted and are all the things that we want. Rhetoric and intellect and powerful speech can draw big crowds. It can be popular. In fact, that was something that was extraordinarily popular then. It's popular today. We do it differently. We just look up TED Talks on YouTube. We, we, we enjoy hearing someone who has important thoughts that they're put together in such a way that they're insightful and concise and make a point. And, and Paul said, you know what? I want to remove and strip away any advantage of merely being entertaining and interesting and, and, and call people to just simply say, do you trust Jesus or not? If you don't trust Jesus, Paul is communicating, I don't have anything for you. That's all, that's all I got. I'm not trying to get a big crowd. I'm not trying to get you to respect me. I'm not trying to get a better reputation. I'm In fact, the effort to have all of those things strips away the power of the gospel. And so he intended when he came to Corinth to merely tell them Jesus saved sinners because he died for sinners like you. And in fact, he had fruitful ministry in the gospel. We have a church that was established because many people with his plain-spoken manner of sharing the testimony of God to them, trusted God for the forgiveness of sin. And this is really going to be his argument throughout the book of Corinth. If this is how you started, what changed? Why all of a sudden do we want to be Fancy Pants Church? We started simple. What changed? Why now all of a sudden do we want to impress people? Why can't we just continue on in what we had, which is a faith in the gospel? So, Paul Paul is going to argue here that he's positioning the gospel as such good news that it needs no help to be received. That's what he's arguing. The gospel is such good news that it needs no help to be received. What we might understand from this in terms of thinking through how this might impact how we think about the gospel, our flourish our sales pitch, our perceived benefits of the gospel speak volumes about how much we think the gospel itself is good news. If, if, the, if the gospel is just okay news, then what we wanna do is add some stuff to it to make it better news. Because if it's just okay news, well, then maybe I need to add some benefits to it, right? So forgiveness of sin is good, right? Okay, thank you. (laughs) Alex is with me on that. So one person thinks forgiveness of sin is good. But you know, I mean, I've got a lot of things going on. So what do we do? We pitch people. We we make a sale. We want to land them, right? So you know what? I've got to be honest with you. You Yes, Jesus forgives sins. But if you want to have a really long-lasting, committed relationship with your spouse, you're going to need Jesus to give you power to do that. What do we just do? Well, the good news is Jesus is giving you forgiveness of sins, which is okay, but he'll also help you stay married. Now, I want you to stay married if you're married. I don't want somebody to write, Greg doesn't want to stay married. That's not what I'm saying. And and marriage is good, Um, but, well, let's get in trouble. (laughs) How long do you live? How long do you live? Have you read your Bible? You live forever. That's a, you live forever. So that's a long time. Now, this part of it, we get, we slow down and we get old, but that's not the way it's gonna always be. We really short-sighted. So how long do you live? Forever, good. Okay, we're doing catechism now. I'm asking questions and giving answers. All right, live forever. How long are you married? Not forever. It's like this little spot. I did the thing. I think the guy said, till death do you part. So we got a whole thing. So if, if Jesus died on the cross for your 50, 60, 70 years of marriage, that's not enough for me. It's too short, isn't it? I don't want salvation for 50, 60, 70 years. I want salvation for eternity. And, and what we do is we pitch things. If you trust Jesus, he'll make your kids behave well. I heard you laughing, I heard you laughing. <laughs> But that's what we pitch. If you want good-behaved kids, you got you to get Jesus and get them to church. I, I think that's beneficial. In fact, the Bible tells us we should train our kids in the, in the way of the Lord. But I don't want salvation just so I have well-behaved kids. That's too small a thing. And so we, but, but, but what bothers us is this idea that merely forgiveness of sins. Well, that's just okay news. Well, it is just okay news if the perspective of your eternity is merely the next 50, 60, or 70 years. But if you could imagine, as the Bible describes for us, your purpose is to love and live and enjoy God for all of time, then forgiveness of sins is the one thing that matters most. But we try to pitch it. We try to upsell it. We try to package it. And Paul decided when he went to Corinth, I'm not going to do any of that. What do you got to offer, Paul? Testimony of the risen Savior who forgives your sins. Now, so why is this hard for us? Okay, let me explain to you. And I don't mean to be too personal, uh, except for the one guy, and you know who you are. (laughs) I'm kidding, mostly. Um, Some of us don't sin very badly. Like we have sins that are really, I mean, they're okay. In fact, they're sins that we sort of would expect. That would, you know, we we expect people to get mad when things don't go their way. And we call it indignation when really it's just someone losing their temper, right? And so many of us uh, don't sin very badly. And so what happens is forgiveness of sin sounds lame because I don't have any cool things to be saved from right? And, and some of you have gone to crusades or events, and you've heard people give their testimony where the first 20 years of their life was this utter darkness. Have you heard these testimonies? And some of you who grew up in the church, have you ever said, man, I wish I had a testimony like that? You say, no, I would never say that. Have you ever thought it? So my testimony's lame. I've been forgiven of being late for school. That so, seems terrible. It's a, and so what happens is, we think, because our forgiveness wasn't for much, forgiveness isn't much. That's an extraordinarily unbiblical way to understand sin. Because God describes each and every person the same way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who seek after, none who seek after God. Everybody's in the same boat, whether you've got a a testimony you could write a book about or you've got a testimony that wouldn't even make a pamphlet. We're all in the same boat, lost in our trespasses and sins. Finally, and, and then we'll move on, maybe. I don't know, maybe. You need to analyze and think about sometimes what we tend to do is I, forgiveness isn't great because I don't really do anything that bad. Now stop though and think. Are you only thinking about the sins that other people know about? I mean, because you've got you to gotta sleep at night with your thoughts. And you know the stuff that passes through your head. So a lot of times what we do is we only evaluate ourselves based on what others know about us. And, so, and, and we're not really ready to concede about what's the secret things that are going on in our hearts and minds. And we're forgiven of those things too. And so we need to recognize one of the reasons we don't think the gospel is that great of news is because we don't recognize how big forgiveness is. That's the thing. We needed it when we were saved and we still need it. Well-placed trust. What's Jesus' motive? He dies while we are still sinners. So he is trustworthy. Now, let's, move, let's look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Not only does Jesus... Uh, love us and offer us forgiveness of sins in our sin through his death. So his motive is in our best interest. The second thing that makes him trustworthy is he is powerful. We can trust him because he transforms lives. Because that's the two things we need for someone to be trustworthy. Number one, we need them to be motivated not to serve their interests, but to serve our interests. That's Jesus. Second thing though We need them to actually have the power to do what they say they're going to do. And what Paul says, we can trust Jesus because he is someone who can change your life. Look at verse 3, 4, and 5. I'm going to read them. Now, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. His name was, well his name is Nick Sloan. First of all, great name. Great name, Nick Sloan, superstar. Nick Sloan's from South Africa and his professional trade is recovering uh, and salvaging ships. So there was a ship that crashed Costa Concordia. Remember this ship? He, the captain sailed it too close to shore because he was crazy. And he wrecked it. Remember that thing laid on its side forever? You remember this big giant ship? It's two or three times the size of the Titanic. And so this company got hired to salvage the ship, which means they had to somehow get it off its side and get it off the coast. And so they hired Nick Sloane, And you have to say it like that. <laughs> Nick Sloan, they said, why, they asked Nick Sloan, why'd they hire you? And he said, because when this goes badly, they need someone to fire. (laughs) So he knew why he was hired. (laughs) But he also was probably the one person on planet Earth who had spent enough time salvaging ships to actually know what it would take to refloat a partially sunken cruise liner. He, He was the one guy. So that's why they hired him. Because he knew what to do and he knew how to do it. So it, it made sense. Let's get Nick Sloane to do it because Nick is probably the one guy who has the expertise to figure out how to get this thing upright. And remember, it had sunk on a slope. So if it were to slide another 100 yards, it would be in 200 feet of water. So he had to keep the thing from sliding down the hill. Then he had to float the thing and sail it away. If you want to know how that went, you can look it up. Well-placed trust. We can trust Jesus because he is the only one with the power, the patience, and love to be able to change our lives. He is the only one. His redemption certainly brings us forgiveness, but what we discover here, his redemption transforms us changes us. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Paul was not uh, nervous. Paul wasn't scared. What he is saying here is he was not having, he was not going to place confidence in his charisma or his skill. He was before them in fear and trembling because his position was going to be, I'm going to share with them the gospel, and either God is going to use that to bring redemption, or he is not. He is completely placing himself in the success of what happens in Corinth in the hands of God and not himself. Paul would have been like most of us. He would have preferred to be in charge of this situation. But he is on purpose. That's what he said. He decides to, in verse 2. He made a decision to intentionally operate in the city in such a way that, God, if you're going to do it, great. If you're not going to do it, I'm sunk. And so this is where his fear and trembling comes from. He still has confidence in what he is preaching. He is preaching the testimony of the Lord and and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, But he knew that it was only God who could transform people's hearts. That's what he says up in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1. You can just look up a little bit in your Bible or scroll up in your device. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he's describing here the work of God. We talked about this at length last week. What does God do to transform us? He saves us. He redeems us. But not only that, he sanctifies us. He makes us more and more and more like Jesus over the course of our life. And so when Paul comes into Corinth, he comes in, in fear and trembling. He said, I'm going to tell them the gospel. And, and I'm praying God changes their lives. Not, not merely forgiveness of sin. That's just the beginning. It's forgiveness of sin and then a transformed life. With power, Look at verse 4. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So Paul here shares his testimony of what it was like for him coming to Corinth with the good news of the gospel. He shares with them the good news of the gospel in the power of the gospel. What is the power of the gospel that... We can see in the life of the Apostle Paul. It's in Acts chapter 9. You can turn there if you want. Or just listen to what I have to say on it. Acts chapter 9. Paul still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. What's Paul doing? Breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. Paul, what does Paul do on the weekends? Threats and murder. Murder and threats. Those two things. That's it. They're hobbies. Everybody's got a hobby. So he asked for letters to go to Damascus because he was going to arrest men and women and bring them to Jerusalem. That was the plan. The murder on this one was going to wait. He was just going to go and breathe out threats, bring them to Jerusalem. But certainly he hopes the murder happens. The whole idea of bringing them to Jerusalem bound is to kill them. That's the goal. Because If you kill Christians, no more Christians get made. Right? Wrong. That's not how it works, but that's what he was thinking. So this, he's on his way to Damascus when suddenly Jesus shows up. Saul, why are you persecuting me? What a bizarre question. First of all, Jesus knows the answer to this. He's Jesus. The answer is always Jesus in the Bible, right? No. He knows why he's persecuting me. He hates him. He hates Jesus. Because Jesus messed everything up. They had a good thing going, good religious system, good merit-based system. If you did right, learned hard, you could work your way up the ranks, just like uh, the Apostle Paul did. And Jesus comes in and messes everything up, and now there are a great risk of the Roman government destroying the people of Israel. He hates Jesus. So well, Jesus shows up to him. So why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, "Are you the Lord?" He says, "I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting." Now, the Apostle Paul's testimony, we can look at it throughout the book of Acts, he understood in this moment, he was talking to the resurrected Jesus. For the Apostle Paul, this changed everything. Changed everything he understood. If Jesus is raised, then he is the Son of God, the Messiah. And in that moment, his entire Old Testament changed. In that moment, the Psalms changed. In that moment, the book of Isaiah changed. In that moment, Genesis changed. It all changed because instead of being about earning God's favor, it became about God sending a redeemer. In that moment, everything changes. So what, the, Paul, what Paul is arguing to the people of Corinth, if you want to see transformed power, I was going to kill people And five minutes later, I was trusting that person for my own life. He was led by the hand blind to Damascus. A guy named Ananias was told to go and lay his hands on him and pray for him. And Ananias' comment to Jesus was, um, have you heard of Paul? And Jesus' response was, go. That's it. I'm sorry, you're worried about dying. I kind of take care of the dying thing. We can sort of be over worrying about that. So Paul's testimony was a testimony of a transformed life. He went from hating Jesus and wanting to murder everybody who believed in Jesus. And this was not pretend murder. He stood at the scene of Stephen's murder in Acts chapter 7, approving of it. This was not sort of like kind of angry at the Christians. He wanted all Christians dead. He encountered the risen Christ. And a few days later, there's a plot to kill him because he's preaching Jesus in the synagogue. That's a transformation. And, And Paul's testimony is you can trust Jesus because he changes you. That's the purpose. He redeems you and gives you forgiveness of sins. And now you have new life, new purpose. Everything's different from that point forward. And that was his testimony to the Corinthian believers. All right, 1 Corinthians 2, 5, and we're going to close. Maybe. Why is he telling them all this? Well-placed trust. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's entire goal in, in preaching gospel is his prayers that they would just simply trust. Jesus saves sinners and Jesus transforms sinners. And what other reason you might have for being in church or following a religious person Or listening to a speaker like the Apostle Paul. Whatever all those other reasons might be. He says his purpose here. I want to make sure that I am as clear as possible that your faith ought to rest only on the power of Christ to forgive sinners and the power of Christ to transform sinners. Any other reason for following Christ is a terrible reason or a very short-sighted reason. He wants us to have well-placed trust in someone who dies for us, whose motive is our interest to his own detriment. And he wants us to have well-placed trust in someone who can change our life. The Apostle Paul then wrote a fantastic poem. I think it's poetic. Maybe it's not a poem. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And I want to read it before we close. Uh, I don't know if you know much about the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is laid out in a really, really, really simple way. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul tells people good news. Jesus saves sinners like you. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is Paul saying, since you have been saved by grace, here's what a transformed life should look like. Very, very simple. One, two, and three. Jesus loves you. You should get forgiveness. Chapters four, five, and six. Are you forgiven? Here's what a transformed life can look like by the power of the Spirit. Then we have in the middle of this, chapter three, beginning in verse 14, is transition. And it's a prayer. So I wanted to read it. I'm not going to really comment on it. I'm going to read it and then just give you some concluding thoughts as we end. Power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Just three ideas and then we'll close. I mentioned earlier many of us maybe were saved young or grew up in the church and so we sort of wonder how can we grapple with the reality of Christ's forgiveness when by God's grace we have avoided some things that might have really left a mark. Does that make sense? So I want to give you an idea of how to do that. My gift to you. I think you know yourself better than you might think, right? And I don't want to remind you of things about you that you wish were different, but here we go. You know your worst impulses, right? If you don't, ask your spouse. You know you're the stuff that you, you don't act on. You say, Well, what are you talking about? It, it's when you're, when you're living your life, minding your own business, and all of a sudden you go, How did that get in my head? You ever had that happen? Liars. And you go, well, Where'd that come from? And sometimes you'll think something and go, like, I, I think I need therapy. I think. I mean, not me, but this is what, what Alex told me. Thank you. Sorry, Alex. Jason, you're next. All right. So what you can imagine is, what would your life have looked like if Jesus hadn't interrupted you? For whatever reason, God decided in Paul's life to interrupt that train wreck Later. And so he had some scars to show for it. And this is a story for many of us. Is God saw fit to interrupt our lives after we had some history. Some of us though, God by his grace decided to interrupt our lives before we had that. However, we must not act as though we did something good. It was merely God determining some people to interrupt here and others to interrupt here. The reality is, I don't care when you met the Lord when he interrupted, he saved you from a whole bunch of stuff. And you know what that could have been because you know how your heart and mind works. And had he not interrupted when he did, how much worse would it have been? And so when we think about forgiveness, we ought to keep that in mind. One of the ways we might say this, had it not been for the work of God, where would I be? And we can, we can grapple with that reality of what Forgiveness means to us because God saw fit to save us from some of those things. Second thing, we can demonstrate the power of the gospel in our life by willing, being willing to just tell people the good news. Many of us are so stressed out that we're going to mess it up. We're so stressed out, what if I say it wrong? It's not complicated It's complicated because we want to close the sale. It's complicated because we want to put a notch on our Bible that we saved somebody and that we reeled them in and we landed it. It's not complicated when it's just simply, Jesus saved a sinner like me. You want a piece of the action? Jesus forgives sinners. If you want forgiveness, he's got it. If you want something else, I don't have anything to sell you. So, one of the things we can do to demonstrate our confidence in the power of the gospel is to get off our high horse of thinking we have to be powerful. All we have to do is tell people they need forgiveness and Jesus offers it. If, if God is going to see fit to use that good news to change their life, then God is going to do it. It does not require you to be awesome. In fact, Paul's argument is, get out of the way by stop. Stopping, I don't know how to say it, quit trying to be awesome. Just let the gospel do the work. Jesus saves sinners when we trust him. Finally this, there might be some of us here today having heard this and we've never put our faith in Christ and I would argue this, I think I've tried to do that, Jesus changes lives. I don't know what he has for you in the next chapter of your life. But to experience the power of Christ's forgiveness is to step onto a new trajectory, a new destination, a destination of transformation. It likely won't be what you expect. And my guess is if you knew what was coming, it's not what you would want. Because when Jesus pitches the gospel, do you remember how he pitches it? It's a great sales pitch. You might want to write this down. Trust me for forgiveness of sins and then I'll give you a cross to carry. Because he knows what life in him means. It means a life of setting aside our own desires and pursuing his. But what I might ask you this, if you don't know Jesus, is perhaps you're ready to see what he can do with your life. You already know what you can do with it. Perhaps it's time to see what he can do with it. Because he will forgive you and he will transform you. You just have to trust him. Jesus, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus. We thank you that you have forgiven us of our sin. And some of us have history. Things we wish we could forget. And we are grateful in this moment you have. Because you have given us your grace through forgiveness of sin. But God, there's also many of us that you by your grace have saved us from many hurts and regrets. The reality is, God, we have lulled ourselves into thinking we don't need your forgiveness as much. God, would you open our eyes anew to how much you have forgiven in our lives, what you have saved us from. And God, we would pray that we would have testimony of the transformation of our own hearts and lives. As the years go by of walking with you, that we'd be able to look back over the years and recognize the change you've brought about. The way you've worked out habits of sin and rebellion. And you have used the circumstances of our life to build deeper trust and affection for you. And God, would you allow us by your grace to set aside a need to be impressive and instead just be willing to tell people the truth. And we've experienced new life in you and we want them to participate. God, we thank you for your love and your grace and I pray that every person in this room in this moment would know they have forgiveness of, of sin through ch- trusting Jesus and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with a song.